welcome to Genderators. I'm your host, Jennifer Sanfilippo. My guest today is Mary Frances Winters, founder and CEO of The Winters Group, a global organization development and diversity and inclusion consulting firm. Dubbed a thought leader in the field, for the past three decades, Mary Frances has impacted hundreds of organizations and thousands of individuals with her thought-provoking message and her approach to diversity and inclusion. In 2017, Mary Frances released a book titled, We Can't Talk About That at Work, How to Talk About Race, Religion, Politics, and Other Polarizing Topics. The book is a thoughtful guide for engaging in bold, inclusive conversations. In this interview, Mary Frances talks about the complexities of her work, and we even have our own difficult conversation. As always, you can find more information, comment, and ask questions on my website at generator.com. That's Generator with a J. Welcome, Mary Frances. It is an honor to host you on Generator today. Thank you so much for having me. I want to share with my listeners that right behind me on my wall, there is the certificate I got from taking the Winters Group's Bold Inclusive Conversations Facilitator Training. The training, in a nutshell, guides you on how to facilitate difficult conversations at work. It was probably one of the best inclusion trainings I've ever been to. And, and the reason why is I think the training, the way it's set up, it invites people to, quote unquote, get it wrong. It invites getting messy. Because I think in those honest admissions, those honest admissions are met with a curiosity and an attentive listening. And it's from this space that we can together share and explore our fundamental belief systems. In this forum, we engage in a deep learning that opens us up to other people's experiences. It was very powerful learning experience for me. And I encourage anyone who is interested in or tasked with facilitating these conversations to check out the Winters Group. They have a number of learning opportunities that are practical, they are current, and they are best in class. Before we dive into the philosophy that drives your inclusion work and the nuts and bolts of difficult conversations, let's back up a little bit and talk about your background. You are originally from Niagara Falls, is that correct? That is correct. I was born and raised in Niagara Falls, New York. So you are, uh, for the Western New Yorkers tuning in, you are a hometown woman. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm then, proud of it. You, Thank you. Well, we, we're proud to, to have you as one of ours. When was it that you moved to Rochester? Oh, I moved to Rochester to go to the University of Rochester. Ah, wonderful. And then you were at Kodak for a little bit, weren't you? I was at Kodak for a little bit, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then in about um, 2000, I moved to the Washington, D.C. area, where I lived for about 10 years. Mm, I see. And um, now I am in Charlotte, North Carolina. Where, where the sun lives. In the winter time. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so what led you to start your consultancy? Um, I thought that I could be more independent, more creative, more innovative on my own than I could in the confines of a large organization. Back during the late 70s and early 80s, when I was in the corporate world, um, there were still lots of biases about women and the role that women play, and the role that women could play. And I felt that there was something bigger for me to do uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. 
and bigger it became. You've grown your consultancy from its very humble beginnings to you're doing trainings and you're giving talks and you're a guest speaker and you're ping-ponging around the nation these days. Yes, absolutely. Actually, our work is global. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually doing work all over the world, right? I've been to um, Singapore, launched the book in Singapore, and I've been to um, Hong Kong uh, in Asia. And last year, I um, went to India to talk about the book. I've done work in Brazil and in England. And so we do. Uh, we are global in our work. Oh, that's fascinating. Having taken the facilitator training using this book, I'm fascinated to know what the conversations in a place like India are like. So in India, uh, the conversation is more around gender dynamics, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but also there are conversations around sexual orientation, uh, Mm -hmm. which have been taboo conversations in India. Mm -hmm. And now they're more open to uh, talking about those kinds of topics to help people to understand and have more of a fact-based way of understanding differences and how those differences may influence the workplace. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. What changed in the workplace to to invite the interest in having difficult conversations at work? Because, I mean, when, when I grew up and when I was early in my career, you, you weren't allowed to talk about anything outside the workplace. You know, now so many things have changed politically. The world has shrunk for us with technology. Is that what's the catalyst? for these conversations about race and ethnicity and, and gender to be taking place at work, or is there more to it? Well, I think it's complex, and I think one thing that you mentioned, technology mm-hmm. certainly plays a role because now with social media, it's so easy for us to see how what people are thinking, mm-hmm. and instantaneously people are responding to things that are happening externally. Mm-hmm. And so I think that has played a big role. I think the other aspect is the demographic changes. Mm-hmm. And so by 2030, it's predicted that half of the workforce will be non-white. And also, many more companies are easily working globally due to technology. Mm-hmm. And so those borders have been eliminated, so to speak. And those cultural differences are being manifested. We're seeing and experiencing cultural differences on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing and hearing how people feel about their cultural others, um, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing and hearing that maybe we thought we would, had come a long way as it relates to accepting diversity. Mm-hmm. But as we look at our social media feeds, we recognize that there's probably a significant minority who still harbor us and them kinds of worldviews and seeing different groups as not being welcomed, as not being as good as. So I think that all of that has contributed to the conversation being more critical to have today. As a matter of fact, I just heard from a potential client in Hong Kong, and they're interested in me coming over to talk about aspects of the book. We can't talk about that at work how to talk about race, religion, politics, and other polarizing topics because of the unrest, the political unrest that is going on in Hong Kong right now and how it's permeating into the workplace. So people are coming to work and they are afraid, they're anxious, they don't know how to talk about if one group takes one side and another group or another person is taking the other side. How do we continue to be productive? 
So organizations here and, and globally are recognizing that employees bring their full selves to work and they're bringing, we're inviting people to bring their full selves to work today. Mm-hmm. And if we're inviting people to do that, then we have to be ready for their full selves. And their full selves includes their cultural identity. And so how I identify my religion, if I'm Muslim, if I'm Christian, if I am a first-generation immigrant, all of these issues are front and center in our news feeds and in, in, in the news media. And people are not able to do their best work if they don't feel that their organizations are going to support the dialogue to come to common ground, mutual understanding, and a, and a way to be respectful and value those differences in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So that's a long answer. But as I said, it's complex. Yes, it's a lot to think about. Uh, kudos to the people in Hong Kong who are bringing you in because that is real-time work and the fear and the frustration and and as a leader in an organization to recognize the need to support their employees and have someone who's trained and understands and has the expertise in managing these conversations it's really well thought out it makes me think of often creating a space to bring in a professional to have these conversations there there needs to be an awareness for the need I think that there are still a lot of organizations who feel that they can manage this by themselves. And I think if you're going to buy new furniture for your office, you hire a designer. You don't go out and pick the furniture and buy it yourself if you're a leader. So I don't understand why someone thinks then that they can manage inclusive conversations on their own without input from the experts. And I think your field is growing. I think more and more people are recognizing this is actually an expertise and that people such as yourselves in this world need to be brought in to help, even if it's at the beginning. Have you seen the uptick in consultancy for this type of work? Do you think more people are reaching out to consultancies or is there still a lot of work to be done? Oh, no, I think that uh, a lot of organizations are reaching out. The big studies that are done by the large consulting firms like McKinsey and Deloitte all point to the fact that leaders recognize that diversity, equity, inclusion, cultural competence are all skills that an organization needs today in order to survive. Mm -hmm. However, those same leaders would rate themselves as not being very good at it. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, the... The need is recognized, and I think more and more organizations are, you know, bringing experts in. Uh, I like to say it is a skill Mm -hmm. uh, to be developed, and so any skill takes practice. If I want to learn how to play the piano, I go to somebody who knows how to teach piano, Mm -hmm. who is expert in, in, you know, in the piano. Mm -hmm. And so it's the same thing um, with this work, and it's very difficult work, just like learning how to play the piano or any skill. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we propose is that it's not a one and done. It can't be. Oh, let's come in a couple of hours and tell me how to talk to those millennials or tell me how to um, <laughs> effectively talk across uh, across gender dynamics. The other issue today that we're seeing more of is, you know, the Me Too movement. And so we've heard men in organizations say, gee, I'm not going to talk to women anymore because it might be considered sexual harassment or I don't want to be a mentor. Oftentimes the leader leaders are asked to mentor, you know, different groups that haven't had the same opportunities. And so we're hearing more now 
I don't want to, you know, mentor women because I don't want to be in a situation where I could be uh, charged with sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. And so we have to have leaders and women and men, women and men to sit down and to talk about what is respect? What does it look like? How do I know when it's happening? Mm-hmm. So, and it's the skill for both, not just a skill for the men, it's just a skill for women to learn too. So no matter what aspect of this work you can think about, there are opportunities and need to talk across difference. There's a need to talk across generations. Baby boomers are still in the workplace. Pretty soon they're going to be five generations in the workplace. How do you coach people to even approach those, those subjects? Well, there has to be some conditions that have to be met when you're, whether it be a, a one-on-one conversation or a team conversation. And those co- conditions um, include trust. And I would maintain that there's not always trust to have the difficult conversations because historically there have been certain groups that have been discriminated against. Native Americans' land was taken away from them. African Americans were subjected to health studies, Tuskegee study, where they were exposed to syphilis. Mm-hmm. And so there are all sorts of reasons why the Japanese were interred, you know, during World War II. And so there's a legacy and there's a history of um, how people have been treated one group to another. And so, you know, the trust is, is not necessarily not necessarily there. I think another condition to have difficult conversations is there has to be some sense of equity. And what do I mean by that? So if I'm coming into a conversation where I want to talk to my boss about the fact that I think that I'm not being treated as well as, let's say I'm a woman, and I'm coming to talk to my boss uh, to say that I'm not treat, being treated as well as the men on the team. And maybe it's a male-dominated organization where they're the percentage of women is fairly low. So there's a power dynamic there, right? So they're not equitable in their positions. The woman is in a lower position. So how do you create an environment where the woman feels open to be able to talk about her concerns given this individual controls her raises, controls whether she continues to be employed? And so we have to think about a condition where we can try to create an equitable equitable space for our conversation. Mm-hmm. If it's a team conversation, let's say let's say the topic at that particular time is you want to talk about racial dynamics. Let's say that is the topic. Mm-hmm. And so you might want to say that people who have been racialized, if you will, um, you might want to say that they should have more airtime, you know, so that might be a way to create an equitable an equitable space. They've been the subordinated group. And so maybe that's a way to create equitable space. But unless you have some conditions up front for having uh, the conversation, they're not going to work. And then there are some skills that you need as well. And one of those skills is to be able to be very, very self-aware. Be aware of what your biases are. Be aware of the worldviews that you're bringing to the table. Be aware of your cultural norms that might be different from other, other cultural norms. Another skill is listening and, and empathy and how can you empathize if you don't know anything about the group that you're trying to have the conversations with so so yeah so there are skills and conditions that are necessary for inclusive conversations to happen mm-hmm. so it's not recommended that uh, a manager say start a difficult conversation an inclusive conversation without some preliminary self-awareness, education, and uh, input from from people out in the field who are experts in the space? Yeah, so if it's going to be a difficult conversation, the leader, um, as well as the other person who might be in the conversation, should both think about 
what skills do I need to have this conversation and what conditions need to be in place and to ensure as best I can that those conditions are, are, are met. So let's say that this, let's carry my example of the leader and the, the uh, woman employee who wants to talk about how she's being treated in that, in that space. And so the leader might recognize his dominance in that particular conversation and put it out there. Like say, say that I recognize as we come into this conversation that I am your boss and that I in essence have the capability of promoting you or not. And so I want in this conversation you to feel that I want this to be an equal conversation. I want you to feel that we're just, I'm a trusted advisor that you're having a conversation with. That might be hard to do, but at least putting it out there and, and, and acknowledging that there's a power differential can help to make the conversation better. Mm-hmm. That's very useful. Thank you. So what have you seen in organizations that you've worked with, what have you seen work and what have you seen not work? And when, and when I say work, I mean meaningful change. What do they need to have meaningful change happen and where have some people fallen short on experiencing meaningful change in their cultures? I think that organizations fall short when they don't give it enough time. Um, we, are, we live in a fast-paced uh, kind of nanosecond world and we want to see results instantly. And this is a process. Um, organizations that claim to be, you know, learning organizations, well, what does it mean to be a learning organization? Well, you're constantly giving intentional time just to learning, mm-hmm. just to professional um, development. And so those organizations that are in it for the long haul and recognize that it could take five, six, seven, ten years before they actually see some prominent change. And most organizations today, you know, again, you know, 10 years seems like an eternity, right? It seems like a really, really long time. Mm -hmm. But I think those organizations that stick to it, that persevere and don't give up and recognize that it's going to be hard, those are the organizations that that make progress. And one organization that we've worked with for a long time is Sodexo. And Sodexo said that it took 10 years for them to see culture change. However, they made it a priority as part of their business plan, so it was not an afterthought. Oftentimes, this kind of work around diversity, around having the conversations around getting it, it's kind of like, oh, we'll do it if we have a problem, so it's more reactive than it is proactive. Mm -hmm. So those organizations that see it as part of the business and not in addition to the business are those that have um, succeeded. Yeah. I agree. I've always maintained that it needs to be part of a strategic plan, a bona fide component of that tangible document. I think that's a big leap for some, but if they can make it, what you're saying is you've seen progress and and kudos to Sodexo for sticking it out. Right, right. (laughs) So I'd like to turn the subject around to intersectionality because Selfishly, while I have you on the podcast, I'm going to ask a personal question. I started Genderator with the idea that I wanted to create a forum for dialogue on gender equity issues in the workplace. And I was very interested in making sure that everything I did invited the male voice. For those who've been listening along, my very first season of the podcast, I only interviewed men because I was really interested in looking into some of the gray areas in the discussion and getting the male perspective. As I was building the website and starting the podcast, a friend of mine talked with me and she 
talk to me about understanding the fact that while I'm talking about gender issues in the workplace and advocating for women to have more opportunity and closing the pay gap, she said that I needed to be mindful of the fact that many women of color identify as their race before they identify as their gender. And that gave me a lot to think about, but I really didn't know, as a white woman, I didn't know how to... um, I don't know, make change, make sure that that women of color were also prominently represented their needs. And so what is it that I can do that I need to be cognizant of of as I work on advocacy for equity when it comes to intersectionality? And maybe would you please define for, for my listeners what intersectionality is first? Thank you. Um, so yeah, intersectionality was actually um, coined uh, by Kimberly Crenshaw some years ago, back in the 80s. And at that time, and her definition of it was the intersectionality of gender and race. Mm-hmm. So she was specifically talking about how women of color uh, were subordinated or even left out of the discussion as it relates to, you know, as it relates to equity. The term since has been expanded to think about all of the ways that we have various intersections, Mm -hmm. not just our race, but our gender, our age, national origin, religion, all of those things that are part of our identity, and they intersect in interesting ways. One of my dear colleagues who's no longer with us, he's saying, you know, I'm a black gay male. So those were three aspects of his identity, which had been, you know, in our society had been subordinated and where he had been discriminated. And so we think about, you know, all of those identities and how they intersect in in complex ways. So intersectionality is just that. What are the number of identities that we have that can be impacted based on societal norms? Mm -hmm. So doing the education and advocacy work that I'm doing in exploring women's issues in the workplace, do you have any advice or suggestions to make sure that I maintain an inclusivity to keep all women included in the work? I think that it's it's complex. You know, women of color are not monolithic. African-American women are not monolithic. So I can speak for myself Mm -hmm. when I say that I, I have experienced over the years that white women assume that our journeys have been similar Mm -hmm. and that our issues are pretty much the same. So feel minimized. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel minimized that that my unique issues as a black woman are not understood Mm -hmm. and they're not taken into account. They're not considered um, in the discussion because there's an oversimplification that we are in this big bucket called women, mm-hmm. but that when you start to look at the intersectionality around that, what does it mean to be a black woman? For example, studies show that affirmative action has actually benefited white women mm-hmm. more than it benefited any of the other protected groups. And I think one of the reasons for that is that when we think about unconscious bias, when we think about white men being the ones primarily in control, and when they think about how can I affect affirmative action, it's easier 
for a white woman is more in common. Mm-hmm. A white woman might remind my, my daughter, mm-hmm. my spouse, my sister. Yeah. So there's, there's more affinity there. So it's not, it's not surprising that white women have benefited more so from the laws that have put, been put into place to minimize discrimination. And the other thing that I have experienced is sort of a patronizing approach from white women, mm-hmm. almost a recognition that, oh, as a black woman, you've got to probably have it harder. Let me help you, my mm. sister. Let me, you know, let me be the one to help. So the savior, the kind of the, the yeah. white savior mentality yeah. around well, white women. And then thirdly, I've seen a competition between white women and, and women of color. Mm-hmm. And I think that their competition can get a little ugly, just relative to, and it's, it's subtle, it's subtle, mm-hmm. but it's kind of relative to this notion that, gee, there's only, the pie's only so big. Mm-hmm. And um, you and I are both, quote, minorities, um, and you might have an edge, black woman, mm-hmm. because you've got the, the double, the double minority. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to, you know, be, be, be more cutthroat with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not really going to help you. Mm-hmm. And that may be unconscious. It may not be a conscious kind of thing. I'm not saying that white women, in my experience, I'm not saying white women have explicitly said that. Right. But I think that's been the, been the underlying bias that has come here. Mm-hmm. So that's been my experience. The more I do this, the more I find out what I don't know. It's great to have people like you participating with your candor and your expertise to help us all learn and understand and do better by each other. Would you have any advice for us to reach out and to find a way to learn more so that we are more inclusive in our communities, to be more productive as we advocate for equal opportunity? Oh, I think that I would invite white women to acknowledge that the journeys and the issues are are different and to be open to listening and hearing how those differences um, play out. I think it's hard when you live in these communities where there's not a lot of opportunity, seemingly, seemingly not a lot of opportunity for integrating socially. I think that it's incumbent upon us to find ways to explore new new cultures and new people and new friendships and new opportunities for these discussions. Absolutely. Have you seen people do that organically on their own outside of the workplace? Um, yes, I, I have. Um, yeah, I think, I think it does happen. I think uh, it happens in faith communities. Um, I think it happens with parent groups. Um, mm. So I do think that it's, uh, it is happening organically. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to give you the opportunity. I know a lot of people are excited about this interview. You have a fan base in Western New York, definitely between Rochester and Buffalo. And everybody I've told that I'm having you on was very excited. So where can people find you and what kind of education and training do you make available if people are interested so, yes, yeah, so you can find us at www.wintersgroup.com, and we have some public offerings. We, as you mentioned so kindly um, earlier in the podcast, Bold Inclusive Conversation Certification Program is offered twice a year. The next time it's going to be on the West Coast, so 
Uh, it's going to be in April. It might still be pretty cold in Western New York in April, so maybe <laughs> you want to go out to, the, go out ah. to California. We're going to have it in the San Francisco Bay Area, and then it will be held again in October of 2020 in New Jersey at Merck's headquarters in, in New Jersey. So that's Bold Inclusive Conversations. It's a three-day certification program, as you mentioned, to support people in getting the skills to be able to have difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. We also have a facilitator institute that's train the trainer, and that is recognizing that people who who have facilitation skills may not have the facilitation skills uh, around diversity, equity, and inclusion, because these conversations can be very controversial, uh, they can be very charged, they can be very emotionally draining. And so we have a facilitator institute that focuses on how do you facilitate, not just the conversations, but how do you facilitate training in general around these topics mm -hmm. and then we have virtual learning labs public virtual learning labs so you can check those out on our website uh, we're doing one next week september 24th on kids and how do you have difficult conversations around race and these kinds of topics with with children so we look at different topics and those are offered about five or six times a year they're free to the public they're 90 minute virtual um virtual learning so those are some of the offerings that we have that are public offerings. And of course, we work with numerous corporations and customize our work for them. We do audits. We do cultural audits, qualitative and quantitative research. Uh, we help organizations with their developing their strategy and integrating their strategy into their business plans. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so we are we do the full gamut of this work. Mary Frances, it's been wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Genderator. For more information or to leave a comment, go to my website at genderator.com. That's Genderator with a J. Thank you for listening. <laughs>